welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Petronauts Podcast. This is episode 29 of the Petronauts Podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 5th. There is so much happening in the global oil and gas market and energy market in general. Um, it's making my head spin. So we have a lot of topics to cover. Uh, if you the, the previous episode that happened was episode 28, and that was at um, Liberty Oil Field Services with Chris Wright. And actually, um, when you listen to this episode today, because today we're going to talk about oil prices and OPEC, the global energy crisis um, will probably dab a little bit into the White House press briefing because um, it is relevant to all the things that are happening with energy prices. And we're going to close by talking about China and Evergrande and the, the property debacle that's going on within China and why that's relevant uh, to the energy space. Um, and we'll obviously be talking about China within the context of this global energy crisis. Um, but I want to highlight the last episode I did with Chris Wright um, at Liberty Oilfield Services with the Denver Petroleum Club, because we talk about a lot of these issues, actually. We talk a lot about China and we talk a lot about power generation and some of the issues that we're seeing and facing today with regards to this global energy crisis. So without further ado, I'm going to just jump into this. So right now, Brent is $82, nearly pushing $83 a barrel. And WTI is $79 a barrel and natural gas is well over six bucks. So this is a situation that I don't think any of us thought would see ourselves in necessarily, not for the same reasons, not for the reasons why why um, prices are where they're at. So what happened yesterday was OPEC agreed to basically, I mean, it was one of the shortest meetings on record. OPEC plus essentially agreed to, to maintain output increases um, and the market ratcheted higher. Now, why the market thought OPEC was going to increase output beyond the 400,000 barrels a day that they agreed to is a little bit beyond me. I think some maybe some traders were hopeful and they got caught on the wrong side of that. Uh, but the reality is, is that OPEC, I mean, so the, in the previous meeting, they agreed to increase output, continue to increase output 400,000 barrels per day per month, and they're probably going to continue to do that. I think there was some wishful thinking, given that prices are spiking and everything's going on, that there was some hope that OPEC was going to come to the rescue um, and add some barrels back to the market. Now, why this is relevant and why technically oil is being impacted here when we're talking really about a global energy crisis and talking a little bit more about natural gas um, and power than we are talking about oil. The reason it's relevant is because um, the demand pull on oil is estimated right now from, and this is from the, the energy crisis that we're talking about. So we're, we're talking about an energy crisis in which um, from natural gas to coal to hydro and renewables, um, but the demand pull that's going to happen on oil, the estimate is about 500 to 900,000 barrel a day increase that we didn't need previously. So there's a there's an estimated increase that we're going to need an additional 500,000 barrels a day to 900,000 barrels a day of oil just for power production, just to, to turn your lights on in many places. Um, because what's happening is we're seeing uh, we're seeing fuel switching from natural gas to oil. And that's not because they, they want to do that. That's because they cannot get the natural gas. And so um, that's what's the relevant context of, of the OPEC um, and oil prices. So I would say oil prices are, are being driven up right now uh, by the global energy crisis that's taking place, which we're going to get into. And um, what we're seeing within the UK, and we're seeing a draw and, and a push or a pull on this demand for, for oil is, is partly a fear, right, that they're not going to have enough of oil at the, at the petrol stations. And so they're going up to fuel up and they're driving shortages. But they also have a lack of truck drivers. Actually, it's an estimated 100,000 
truck drivers that they're short of. So they're having a hard time actually being able to just fill up those stations. It doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have enough gasoline and diesel um, within the country. It means that they they don't have the ability to get into those stations. And that's actually driving a, a run on food and and everything. And so your, your uh, store shelves are empty as well. So super scary stuff going on within the UK. But in the context of bringing this back to just oil prices and OPEC, I think it's relevant um, is that the so U.S. production, just so you all know, I mean, we're still the biggest producer um, in the world at 11.3 million barrels per day as of July. Um, that's probably a bit higher, obviously, um, with new data that will come in this month. And um, and natural gas production, we've really come back to these sort of pre-COVID levels. Our, our storage levels are a little bit lower than they should be as well. Um, and you have to remember that we had a massive... Um, Every outage around the world um, has ripple effects. So while the U.S. is more insulated from oil and specifically natural gas perspective than other countries, uh, we did have obviously a massive outage with with Hurricane Ida that took millions of barrels um, offline. Um, So people were drawing into stocks for that. So there was million barrels a day offline for crude for um, for several weeks or for weeks on end. And the same thing for natural gas that we saw um, production of natural gas in uh, in the Gulf of Mexico uh, came offline as well. So those are two components within the U.S. Now, from a global context, from the OPEC standpoint, OPEC sort of maintained this. I mean, as of as of August, which is their latest data that we have, and we'll get the September data for what OPEC says their production actually is. But as of August, they were um, OPEC was producing nearly 27 million barrels per day. That number is probably closer to 20. I'm guessing they're 27, I think it's between 27 to 28 million barrels per day that OPEC is producing now. And they, um, as of July, um, this was their August figures, but as of July, Saudi Arabia was producing 9.4 million barrels per day. So they're probably closer to the numbers I've seen of, and heard of around 9.8 million barrels per day for Saudi Arabia. And uh, so these countries have increased output. We are seeing these steady output increases. So one of the things to think about with regards to why didn't OPEC increase output an additional beyond the additional 400,000 barrels a day. And that's because there's a, a lot of unknowns here. And this is not necessarily something that oil production in and of itself is not going to solve this energy crisis. So I don't necessarily agree with with Barky Mundo and, and the, the OPEC secretary and all the OPEC players um, all the time on their decision making and everything. But I would say they're not they're not exactly wrong here in looking at the market and not not adding barrels to the market just uh, because of this this energy crisis, because the the oil supply alone is not going to solve um, the real shortages that we're having globally in natural gas and uh, and coal and other and other power sources. So that's a very very serious issue. So, um, but that's in context of of oil of oil production. Now, to uh, to reference this uh, um, as well in, from a U.S. perspective is that um, the White House press secretary in the press briefing yesterday, October fourth. Oil energy prices were obviously mentioned. Inflation was obviously mentioned. We're certainly going to be talking about inflation in the context of this global energy crisis. But in the U.S. and particularly uh, the press secretary, she downplayed inflation again. Um, she continues to do that and basically said it, it continues to be transitory. Um, and then they also did mention, she also did mention OPEC again and that um, that our, that we had um, more more conversations and talks with OPEC members on trying to increase output and maintaining stable supplies and stable prices. Uh, the the ironic thing here is that I'm surprised that we haven't been called upon as the U.S. and that she hasn't taken it upon herself to to say something about the U.S. producing more natural gas and exporting it. I mean, the reality is is that while it takes a longer time to produce natural gas, the U.S. is we are the single largest producer of natural gas in the entire world. Our shale basins alone are producing 75 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. And we have, uh, I mean, you can ramp it up, you have takeaway issues and things like that. Um, But the ability for us to ramp up production and potentially, you know, speed up 
um, facilities and stuff and uh, for, for LNG export, it's possible. It's not like we could do this overnight and we certainly couldn't change the dynamics of the current situation, but we could prevent it from happening um, or help it prevent it from happening in the future. So with that being said, I am going to dovetail directly into this, this global energy crisis. And I am going to start uh, with the UK because I think what everyone uh, tended, what we saw um, on what folks were, were seeing on, on TV and what, if you've seen Bloomberg and the headlines and everything was um, actually gasoline or, or petrol shortages at in the UK at um, gas stations. So essentially folks are going to gas stations, they weren't getting enough and the UK has deployed their army, their military to send truck drivers to actually fill up these, uh, make sure these gas stations have fuel in them. Now it isn't, like I said, I don't think it's that they ran out of fuel. I think it's that they, they do have a, a massive shortage of truck drivers. So these labor shortages that we talk about in the US, we have a shortage of truck drivers in the US in, from the oil field to UPS to Amazon all over the place. Um, and part of this, I think, is they have a fur they had a furlough program. Um, we also, I think, was mentioning uh, mentioned on Bloomberg today. There's still incentives in place um, outside of just pure unemployment benefits. There's still incentives in place, um, or I wouldn't say incentives. I would say there's still um, elements of subsidization, and um, I think perhaps not having to to pay back student loans. Different things in place right now that are helping to prevent folks from going back to work necessarily that they, they don't have bills to pay. So we still have a massive amount of, of jobs that are unfilled. So I know we're getting jobs data within the coming days, but it was, Chris and I talked about this in the last podcast about 10.9 million jobs unfilled. And that's basically the same number of the jobs that we lost um, in it during the pandemic. So a lot of jobs that are unfilled and which means the employment rate um, is not exactly indicative. So when when the Fed and federal policy and monetary policy around the world is targeting inflation and unemployment, it's pretty hard to do that when you're going for full unemployment and inflation. One, they've completely missed the target on inflation because we're going to shoot outside of that. And I think there there's a huge reality with this energy crisis where you've seen a lot of global entity, other countries calling out the U.S. and calling out the Federal Reserve and saying you're completely off the mark. You've basically missed you know, you're way outside. This energy crisis is going to further cause additional inflation. Um, and then you also have this $3.5 trillion package that's being um, being stalled within within Congress um, and the debt ceiling within the U.S. Um, and that was addressed by, by the White House press secretary as well. And uh, she was asked directly whether or not um, this, she was asked directly by a reporter whether or not this uh, bill was going to increase um, the deficit and uh, the cost of the, this bill. And she said it cost zero dollar. Basically, it was, it was zero. And she didn't say it was free, but she said it was zero. It wouldn't cost anything and because the top line is paid for and it's paid for by wealthy Americans who make over $400,000 a year. Um, and the reality is, is that with inflation, I think people have to really start to think about that. It is not just uh, it isn't just income earners above 400 that are making a, a single person who's making above $400,000 a year it is businesses and it's couples and everything. So there's a number of different ways that um, businesses are going to be taxed and as uh, corporations are going to be taxed. And the concerns are not that that's just one thing, it's compounded, right? That we have massive inflation already um, that is not probably gonna be transitory, that we already have wage inflation um, that usually does not come down um, and that we have rising energy costs. So the consumer has less money in their pocket and has inflation, which means every dollar that they save is actually 
it's worth less. And so when you go ahead and then you say, okay, now we're going to spend 3.5 trillion extra dollars on top of this, we're going to cause further inflation. And we're going to be eating into the parts of the economy that um, corporations are going to be taking money out. And so they're, they're independent tax authorities that are basically or, or bipartisan tax authorities that have assessed this and essentially it doesn't come, it, the math does not work. We're not going to be able to take in enough revenue uh, because there isn't going to be enough, there isn't going to be enough revenue for, uh, for um, these provisions in this tax plan to actually pay for this $3.5 trillion. So we'll see where all that goes, but it does play into this, this whole energy picture and uh, climate change and green stuff was, was also mentioned within that White House press briefing. So sorry, I will bring this back, global energy crisis. Okay, coming back to the UK um, and to Europe. So putting this in context, right? The, the UK from a gasoline and diesel standpoint is getting, they're bringing in truck drivers to fill, um, to fill these gas stations. The real issue within the UK and from a power standpoint, and this is happening across Europe and we'll get to Asia and China in just a second. The real issue is, um, it, is power generation. Uh, so in China, we are seeing over 30 pro 32 provinces that have actually have blackouts and brownouts and, and rolling blackouts in certain places. Um, and in, in Europe, we're seeing these skyrocketing natural gas prices. So we're seeing 30 bucks for its TT, um, TTF, which is Tidal Transfer Facility, um, which is the virtual hub in the Netherlands. We're seeing prices just soar for, for natural gas there. And we're seeing that across the board. Now, the reason for that is there's two really good papers that I'm going to point you to. And that is that EIA does a weekly natural gas update. And then this natural gas update that they did, they talked about and have some great charts on European natural gas inventories. And something you'll learn if, you, if you're listening to BBC and if you're trying to study up on this energy crisis, something that you keep hearing and everybody comes back to is storage, is the lack of storage within the UK um, and the lack of storage actually within Europe. And that's partly because of just the fundamentals and the nature of energy. Not dissimilar from what we had in the US where you know we have all of a sudden in 2010, we had massive growth in oil production in the Bakken, but we didn't necessarily have pipelines coming out of North Dakota to get its market. The UK has typically been dependent and, and beholden to supply in the North Sea. So they didn't really need storage necessarily for natural gas. They would just get it from production. And there's been a slug of, of perfect events. So this, when they call this a perfect storm, it truly is. When you have a crisis, it's never one single thing um, that, um, that causes something. There's usually a single thing, sometimes a single thing that can break the camel's back, the straw that breaks the camel's back. But there are a number of factors here um, that came together to, to make this happen. And one of them is certainly um, lack of storage levels. So there's two papers I'm gonna point you to, that Natural Gas Weekly update from the, um, from the EIA, as well as this um, Oxford Institute for Energy Studies on why gas prices are so high. And what's great about this paper is that it starts off by saying all the papers that they wrote before, and very, very recently, that in, in October 2019, that the papers that they were writing were calling $2 gas in Europe. And this is really relevant because everyone thought that in 2019 and even 2020 that we were going to have very low prices in Europe, and we did. So COVID, um, essentially, in 2019, the market was pretty well supplied. COVID happened, and just like the supply chains where folks um, thought that we would be demanding a lot of goods, um, folks sort of turned off the taps. And essentially, it exacerbated a lot of supply chain issues. And the same thing goes for, for natural gas and particularly energy is that the system was not prepared and folks did not stockpile appropriately during this time. The other piece of this and what we're seeing is that, you know, and they say this um, as well, and I'll quote it, but 
we went from basically oversupply uh, to undersupply and the severity of both. And uh, several things that happened were, were essentially weather in late last year. So we saw, remember, we, we've talked about this on the podcast previously, and I mentioned these price spikes that we saw for natural gas last year um, in the winter for Asia. And they were relatively short term, but we did see price spikes of, of 30 bucks um, on MCF. I mean, huge big numbers that you saw Asia and particularly China importing LNG and these big price spikes. Now, we'll get to this shortly, but China doesn't um, consume as much, nearly as much natural gas as a lot of folks think. They pr consume predominantly coal and they, they do have a slug of renewables, but coal is their main source of power generation. Um, so, But Asia does take in a lot of natural gas and Asia is the dominant uh, taker and consumer of liquefied natural gas. And, and uh, Europe is secondary. So it's important to realize that uh, Europe is this the marginal consumer, so right? They usually they're fighting for these uh, this LNG supply now, and that's partly why prices are driven up. But the reality is, is that um, you had a really cold, you had a cold, unusually cold winter, um, and you had this price spike, and then you had a unseasonally cold late winter, right? So in in uh, in April we had some unseasonally cold weather in Europe, and um, and there was a pull, and we also had this um, same thing in Asia, and then in Asia, particularly in China, we had a very very hot summer. And so this wasn't well uh, talked about on, it wasn't well talked about within the media. It certainly wasn't well talked about with Bloomberg or CNBC. But if you go back, you can sort of find a few things um, on, on the UK as even in August, um, talking about wind wind energy and, and some issues there. So there's several things that happened within, with just regards to the weather um, within China and Europe, and particularly in the UK that are noted. And China, we had a very hot summer. And so obviously power draw, you're pulling and you're, everyone's consuming lots of energy and they're trying to turn on their air conditioning and they're probably pulling a lot of coal um, uh, from coal from thermal power generation. And we've seen, if you're looking at some charts, thermal power generation is through the roof um, for coal for, for China. Now what happened was they didn't just like, uh, just like Europe, which I'm gonna get into in a second in terms of these storage levels, they didn't have enough coal storage. So China has not had enough coal Coal stockpiled basically on the side to to sort of handle this, and there's a number of reasons for that. It is not necessarily the reason that people are pointing to, which was that Xi Jinping is pushing his uh, his agenda for um, reducing CO2 emissions, and that is why they don't have enough coal. That's not necessarily the case. There are several other factors, um, but one of them is is it is a lack of coal supply, is a lack of bringing in coal from Australia um, because they banned those imports, and just not having enough, and then having these unseasonal temperatures and then this drawdown and then this need for, for stockpiling for um, energy um, coming into the winter. Okay, so bringing this back to Europe, I think it's important. I'm gonna quote from this paper, this uh, natural gas paper from Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, which I'm also a fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. So I have a lot of respect for these guys and, and the work that they do. Um, but this, uh, this, re this report says, quote, the amount of LNG that comes to Europe um, effectively determined is effectively determined by what's left over. It's um, after everyone else has taken what they need and less about what Europe needs. All other countries and regions in the LNG market are largely demand driven. So that's really important to think about is that that when we're looking at the LNG market and you're thinking about prices soaring and prices spiking, one, it's that yes, people are demanding it, but people are trying to stockpile right now. So one of the things that's happening with China and Asia is China has said su secure supply at all costs. Essentially, they had these massive power outages and there are a number of issues going on within China that that's not going to be OK for people to be without power. So the uh, the government has essentially said secure 
supplies and secure energy at any and all costs. And in fact, they've rolled back a number of measures on coal, which we'll get to shortly. Um, but the point is, is that so now that's why we're seeing these massive price spikes in liquefied natural gas and, and natural gas price, prices globally is because everybody's demanding this, right? The, 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 everyone's trying to store up enough natural gas to get ready for the winter. Um, and they didn't have enough storage before because it drew down on because it we had too much supply in 2019 and then it has since drawn down and people there hasn't been enough restocking. Um, and that is a major issue. Um, there are other reasons and other components to this of why this took place. Um, but we did see that, so China has about 30% higher LNG imports than it did in 2019. So that's pretty significant. You're talking about 17, um, essentially 17 billion cubic meters um, and a 30 per, 30% higher than it was in 2019. And the overall market you have to realize in China in is not that big for natural gas. It is roughly, um, I mean, it's it's about 32, 33 BCF a day. And think about the US where we're essentially, uh, we produce around 100 BCF a day of production. We, uh, 75 BCF a day of that is from shale gas alone and associated gas from, from liquids rich plays. And then we, we have all, obviously this other production and we consume about around 80 BCF a day of that. And they're exporting between 10, 11 and, and pushing those, those numbers probably closer to 12 on, from a liquefied natural gas perspective. And, and China imports, you know, around 2019, 2020, they're importing about 15 BCF a day. So not a ton of their, I mean, they're just, they're actually domestic, their domestic natural gas market is around 30, you know, 30-ish BCF a day, 30 billion cubic feet per day is their market. That's not very big. So that is also a big problem here is that, so they're trying to fill that void because they don't have enough coal, but they actually don't have, um, they don't have the massive natural gas power infrastructure that, uh, that other nations like Europe has. Okay, so getting back to Europe and what is taking place in Europe. Sorry, just sporting that Petronard's mug there. Um, and some getting caffeinated here. So getting back to Europe, this Natural Gas Weekly update does a great job. It's from September 29th from the EIA. Does a fantastic job of basically showing the showing the actual figures of storage and the the problem with low storage within within Europe. So it, basically, Europe is uh, inventories as of Tuesday, September 28th were 22% below 2020. So you're a quarter below and they're 16%. And this is the, we're talking about Europe, excluding the UK. This is 16% below the five-year average. Um, so you have this colder than, um, colder than expected weather, essentially in late 20, basically 2020, 2021. And then you also had this cold snap in April. And so drew down, um, you drew down these stocks within Europe and they weren't basically, they weren't essentially replenished. So Austria, Germany, and the Netherlands are three of the big ones. And it, it is problematic because we also have less, we also have less gas coming in from Gazprom from Russia. And there's, um, so the stocks of natural gas within Europe from Gazprom are pretty low. Um, they're actually, they're actually 75% below their five-year average to date, which is very problematic. So there's a lot of talk about could you get Nord Stream 2 up and running quicker? There's a number of factors happening there. The picture with Russia is a little bit more clouded, um, but the reality is, is that Austria, Germany, Netherlands, um, and the UK as well, all are under, well, are understored. Um, the other problem is that you have, um, and you've, you've, you're competing with these this this LNG imports, right? You're trying to pull in these LNG imports, but the cost is just going up. So the competition is, is it's going to go to, it's going to go to, Asia before it comes to um, before it comes to Europe usually 
Okay. So the other problem, you have competition with liquefied natural gas. We know that, right? Now we know competing for LNG from with, with Asia to Europe, right? And we know that we have um, reduced inventories within Europe, right? Not just the UK, which we'll, we'll get to momentarily, um, but we also have just respectively thinking about this, um, Austria, Germany, and the Netherlands, as of September 28th, ha- held 42, 29, 42%, 29%, and 35% less natural gas than they did the same year, same time last year. So that's highly problematic. Um, that really means that we have some serious issues from a storage standpoint, that that's partly why people are freaking out a little bit. Um, and you do have, you do have in Europe um, power, power plants that are able to switch from natural gas to fuel oil. So basically natural gas to actual crude oil, they're doing that switch, right? And that's partly why we've seen price spikes and or partly why we've seen the concerns around crude oil and that increased demand is that folks are forecasting 500,000 to 900,000 barrels a day of increased demand from crude oil, simply from power, um, not just in Europe, but in Asia and elsewhere that they'll be switching because natural gas price spikes are so high. Not just that the prices are so high, but they're not gonna actually be able to get the natural gas. So that's a huge component and that they don't have these inventories. And what's driving those prices up now is that we know we're going into the winter and folks want to store this this natural gas. Um, and there are a number of factors. It's not just one, you know, it's, it isn't just one thing. So we have had LNG maintenance. So there has been LNG production facilities that we, we've had maintenance. I, I, we've heard about uh, production maintenance. COVID had didn't help a lot of this in the sense that Maintenance wasn't done on some on production platforms within the North Sea. Uh, maintenance wasn't done on some LNG, and so that maintenance is being done now, um, and that's problematic. We've also seen, and we need to migrate this conversation back to the UK, is that we've seen some serious issues within um, within the UK in particular um, because they don't have a lot of they don't have a lot of storage, and they're you know having a big push to obviously go to significant. Uh, significantly on renewables. And, and so you hear a lot of commentary on BBC and otherwise, so we need to increase storage and folks talk about increasing hydrogen storage. But the reality is they don't have a lot of natural gas storage in general. So they don't have this backup. And the reason is, is because they would get that production from the North Sea and they would just bring it in. Well, that production has declined from the North Sea and um, significantly because of COVID and because of lack of investment. And now they don't have that. They don't have this ample supply. And now they have obviously separately this issue with not having enough truck drivers. And it it is really exacerbating the situation. So in the UK in particular, it is driving up um, this this energy crisis is driving up. I believe it was 12 percent of it was a 12 percent increase for for energy um, for the consumer. So it's a huge huge sticker shock. So there's massive concerns about inflation within the UK and Europe on the back of these significantly raising energy costs um, that are really, really hitting the consumer. And obviously we are feeling it in the U.S. We're feeling higher energy costs and we're, we're feeling it from the oil standpoint and, and Americans tend to drive more, but we haven't felt it. And we have over $6 in MCF gas, so we're feeling it there, but have not felt it in the same way these consumers are, are, are going to be feeling it, um, especially now and throughout the winter in Europe. So there's significant concerns about inflation within Europe now um, that wasn't present just weeks ago. And um, multiple factors have come together to do to make this a perfect storm. And, and that is that now when we bring this back to the Asia side, and particularly, it is really a China story. When we talk about the demand, uh, the supply outages. Okay, yes. So when we talk about the supply outages within China and that literally power outages, so these, these I wouldn't even call them rolling blackouts. One, firstly, something you have to know and, and uh, 
I know more drilling had, had advised me that I, I bookend some of these conversations I have with on China. And the reason I talk about China so much is because it's an extremely important component to the global energy landscape and the global economy. And so when China sniffles, um, the whole world is going to feel it uh, for a number of different reasons. And I think it's extremely important to understand what's happening with China and putting that in context of what that can mean for for energy prices, because if, if China's economy slows, which it clearly is doing, we're going to feel on the energy side. So, um, we'll, we'll, um, before we, I close this podcast, I will talk about what I, why I think that um, these rising prices are, are not here to stay. I mean, we may see increased volatility going up, but I, I think that there's some major, major concerns because of these these price spikes. But bringing this to China, and we'll get into. I'm going to come back to the UK on this lack of wind and stuff on, on renewables, because um, it is really, really important. Um, so in China, also a perfect storm, right? Um, just like in Europe, you had these you, uh, unseasonable weather, you know, colder weather, um, and we had, these, we had these price spikes, which we saw in the winter, but we've had a really hot summer in China. And so uh, hot summer, if you know, in China, you have 65 to 75% of the power is coal. It is not extremely efficient, right? So you have a lot of provinces that one, they don't share well. So you don't have a lot of uh, grid power sharing across across these these provinces within China. So they also, um, we mentioned in previous podcasts, or I mentioned in previous podcasts, where China has these five-year plans and they have GDP growth targets, or they, they used to, they didn't put a GDP growth target in the last one. Um, that just came out, but they have these GDP growth targets typically in these five-year plans. And then these provinces basically go out and they go try to hit it. And they do that by, I mean, part of it is building, you build a coal-fired power plant and then you you build up all the businesses and sort of run it. So it's an easy way to sort of hit the GDP growth target and it's cheap and it's convenient and yet you have a lot of coal. So you, but they build to peak loads, they build to peak capacity, right? So the, the need, right? And they want to make sure that people have energy and they can turn their lights on at any, at any time, right? They're, there's not, they're not extremely efficient. Um, and it, it is a little bit alarming that they don't have enough power right now, that they are shutting down power. Um, and this is multifold is that so you had this hot summer and you had um, obviously they were using a lot of coal, but they also had restricted imports from Australia. And while this may not be a massive amount of supply because China does supply the bulk of their own, they produce most of their own coal. Um, it was a not, it was a little bit. Right. And they also had a reduction in coal uh, production. And part of this, you know, folks had said. You know, you're, you're hearing um, within Bloomberg and CNBC in the media, you're hearing that a lot of this has to do with Xi Jinping's going green strategy and his hitting emissions. They do have a Ministry of Ecology and the Environment, and I have talked about that at length within this, uh, within the context of this of China Goes Green, this book on on China's green authoritarianism, and something that everyone should check out. Which, and we'll talk about um, the hydropower thing in just a moment, but. The, it's not really about the emissions, right? Part of this coal, the reduction in coal production within China was about actually safety of these of, of coal, coal production plants. So some of them were shut down. I think it was safety. It was corruption. There's a number of things going on. And immediately, we've already seen as of yesterday that China, this is a Bloomberg title, China orders banks to ramp up funding to boost coal output. I've also seen several other headlines and articles where China is actually loosening the restrictions on safety measures and protocols just to increase output. So part of the, I think there was some major safety issues and concerns in, in some coal production. And so they 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 reined that in and then they dropped output. And you have to realize it's it's different than what we do in the US and different than we do in a lot of um in in, in more liberal democracies is that um when China says they're gonna do something, they can do it very quickly. And so 
oftentimes it's, it's, um, it's, it's a lot, right? It's not a little thing. When they go to regulate something, they overregulate it and they can kill it or, or it has significant ramifications. Just like the current crackdown on, you know, children video gaming of only letting children uh, play three hours of video gaming. I mean, it's kind of an intense measure to be taken because they're concerned about kids being addicted to video games. Same thing with this coal thing. If if they saw that there were issues in mines and stuff, they probably went ahead and as opposed to, you know, taking a scalpel and going after the right coal mines and making sure there's no corruption, they probably went across the board of any coal mine that just doesn't look, doesn't look great and they shut it down. And that in tandem with this hot summer and the reduction of imports from Australia um, and banning those imports have led to lack of, a, they don't have enough coal. The other piece of this is that, as I explained earlier, they don't have the robust natural gas uh system that we do, right? They don't have a, the demand is not nearly as high. It's it's significantly lower than a lot of people think. Um, and it's just not, they don't have the infrastructure, right? And part of that's because they've been very serious about not being completely reliant on natural gas. They don't want to be any further reliant on the global energy system than they have to be. And so that is why they, they have not switched over to natural gas. It is also why I don't believe they're serious about meeting their emissions targets. And partly the other, the other piece on coal is that it is a lot to do with pollution. So pollution has far more to do with, with, uh, with Chinese, um, China actually hitting their targets um, than emissions does. It's it's far more about pollution and the cleanness of the skies and, and actual that type of stuff than it, than I would say more seriously about at least in the short term than it is about these climate genitals. Um The other thing I'll note is just that this this summer this heat is really important. Is that um, there's a there's an article from um, the Financial Times that was uh, an opinion article that was and this was from. This was from a few days ago that talks about China power companies, heat waves and low coal coal stocks threaten profits. So this heat wave over the summer wasn't was not really well. um, I would say I didn't hear about it a ton uh, from the energy side of of how big a deal this this heat wave was in China. And the thing I'm going to get into here is is understanding how China is powered. And I know I've talked about this before and we've talked about it's 65 to 75 percent coal. But the other thing you have to realize is that there's a lot of wind in it, um, a lot of wind and solar and a lot of hydro. I mean, actually, China has some of the, the most I mean, they have a massive amount of wind and solar and hydro and they're leading in that space, essentially. Uh, but they also just have a lot more um, by terrible hour, a, a much bigger system. And uh, like I explained before, they're not building from an efficiency standpoint. They're building from a GDP, a growth standpoint and to meet um, to meet peak load. So that's something to think about. That's a huge component to this. OK. Okay, so China has builds these builds these um, just well. This does relate to the property sector and how they actually work with the property sector and their economic growth. But just to put some numbers in perspective of when we see when we see um, like electricity consumption, we see power consumption and power demand, and where it's generated, the sources of that it's generated from. I'm just going to give you some perspective on solar, wind, hydro, nuclear, natural gas, and coal for China, Europe, and the US. Just to put this in context and put it in perspective so that everybody's on the same page for the numbers. And this is the Petronas podcast, so we do get nerdy and we do like figures. And I think figures really sort of uh, help resonate with folks. Um, When I say 60 to 75% coal power generation, it's a lot, but we can put this in a terawatt hour perspective, which helps uh, bring this back to, to, to apples to apples. So for solar power generation, China does have a lot. It's 260 terawatt hours. That's quite a bit. Um, now, looking compare that to, to coal, which their their terawatt hours for coal are 5,000. Um, so that's that's a lot. And um, so that solar is just a drop in the bucket, um, if you think about that. But in comparison to Europe and the U.S., Europe is about 180 terawatt hours and the U.S. is like 130 terawatt hours. 
if we look at wind, same thing, roughly same thing. Actually, Europe is ahead of, of China on, on wind power generation. Um, they have over 500 terawatt hours where China has 467 terawatt hours or around 470 terawatt hours and the U.S. 340 terawatt hours. Um, again, and let's bring this bring wind compared back to coal for China. Coal fire power generation is 5,000. This is, a, this is according to BP statistical data from 2021, which is 2020 data and review. So coal is 5,000 terawatt hours for China, um, 574 terawatt hours for Europe, and um, 844 for the US. So significantly more. And for comparing that to Europe, I mean, Europe has more, uh, has nearly as much wind power generation as they do for coal. So that's a big deal. Now, let's just bring this, let's just bring this in comparison to natural gas. And then we're going to get into this um, hydro in a moment, but that wind component is really big because um, something that has been an issue within the UK and something that you've actually heard commentators talk about and has been difficult for folks to really discuss in, in a real framework. And I, I heard the, this, the a VP of Vesta's wind energy on, um, on Bloomberg last week, about two in the morning on Tuesday night, and he was pretty pissed that um, he was being, he basically said, we don't need to be talking about the intermittency of wind. We really need to be talking about the volatile natural gas prices. And there's a, uh, there's a problem with this. And because there, this price spike in this energy crisis that we're seeing has a lot to do with stability, grid stability and grid reliability. And consumers don't just want power to come on. They want, um, they do need stable prices because they, they can't have these um, massive price spikes because they can't plan their lives around that. And so in the UK, and this is not just the UK, but this has been happening all over. In the UK, there had been, and this has been noted, and even in August, this was noted that there were low wind speeds. So in, as of August 12th, there was a note from um, low winds, from CNBC saying, quote, low wind speeds hurt profits at two of, uh, at two of Europe's major energy firms. So low wind speeds in the UK and Europe led to reduced output from wind, which meant that you were pulling on other energy sources, right? You're pulling on more natural gas, you're pulling coal. Well, the same thing happened within China, and it's not well talked about within China, and nothing is well discussed in China. You're never going to get the true story. You have to really study it and understand, and you, you got to listen to all the media as well, but then you have to read through the tea leaves and understand what's going on. When I'm giving you these numbers for wind, and I'm going to give them to you for hydro in a second, they're massive. So when the wind isn't blowing. It's a huge deal for China. And it's actually a huge deal for Europe because we're, I, I told you, 100, 180 terawatt hours for solar for Europe and 510 terawatt hours for wind for Europe. That's huge. Okay, so means a lot, right? You have, uh, when, when the wind stops blowing, it's a huge deal. And I know that uh, folks think that the, the oil and gas industry is un, unfairly criticizing and, and uh, we're not, and, I, and I'm not, but it is a serious issue is that when you have this much power generation from wind and solar, um, it's a big deal when they're not working. And solar is not really the component here, although I will point out, um, and this, I never had the books in mind, and I, I brought it here. Um, this book, uh, The Third Revolution by Elizabeth Economy, is a really great overview if you're not super familiar with a lot of the stuff that's been taking within China over the past several years. And there's a comment in there on solar uh, the lack of efficiency of solar simply because there's so much pollution that actually about the solar loses about 15% of its um, of its efficiency within China because of the pollution. So there is something to be said about that. But when I'm talking about Europe and um, and and the, this is this is all of Europe. Um, so 510 
a terawatt hours of wind, if it's not blowing, it's really going to be really problematic, which means they're drawing down on other sources, that coal and that natural gas. And if we're looking at natural, so natural gas ter- from a terawatt hour perspective is um, in China is only 247 terawatt hours. That's in comparison to 5,000 terawatt hours for coal. For Europe, it's 760. So that's quite a bit, 760 terawatt hours versus the U.S., which is 1,740. So you, the U.S. is, is um, nearly three times that of um, three times that of Europe and massively bigger than China. And we have a lot of natural gas, so it, it does make sense. And that has obviously increased significantly in the last several years with shale gas and the decline of coal because the coal coal um, uh, coal power generation is 844 for the U.S. So more than Europe, um, a fraction of less than a fifth of what it is in China. So, okay, hydro is the other component here. Um, so it, what, it's not just wind. Um, China has a lot of hydro. And I only heard this mentioned once uh, on, on wind and no one really mentioned the hydro. And I was trying to think about when I kept seeing these headlines for China that it was it was all about, you know, Xi Jinping enforcing the CO2 emissions and trying to reduce targets. And that's why they were having an energy crisis on coal and something just didn't make sense. Um, and the whole studying, learning about understanding the weather from the hot summer and the drawdowns for coal, that makes sense. The other component is hydro. And China has some of the, one of the ways they've been able to increase their renewables so much is through hydropower. And hydropower is a renewable. It's not necessarily categorized, you know, wind and solar tend to be those renewable. Hydropower is renewable. We have a decent amount of hydropower in Europe, um, not nearly as much in the U.S., but we have a, a, a double the hydropower in China that we do in Europe. And the reason we have so much hydropower in China, and I mentioned this in previous podcasts, um, I actually mentioned this on the podcast with Chris Wright as well, is that you can, um, China doesn't have the regulatory environment that they basically can pick people out of their homes and move them and change an entire ecosystem with hydropower. Um, China Goes Green is an excellent book that talks about, um, when it talks about hydropower, it's really, really important in understanding the entire ecology, the, the system basically from upstream to downstream of how you're changing, how that water flows and how it's had big impacts on those um, environments upstream and the environments downstream of that and actually exacerbated issues and caused droughts. But it has provided power and 1300 terawatt hours is what China provides for, for from just from hydropower. That has declined as they've had hot summers and water issues. So lack of hydropower lack of wind power, be, um, lack of hydropower because it's not wet enough. Um, and same thing, um, we've, we've heard the same for Europe, actually, um, of the hydropower that they have, which is 655 terawatt hours um, um, for Europe and 288 for the US. We've seen, we've heard that we've had less hydropower out of Europe this summer, and we've had less hydro um, and less hydropower out of out of China. And we've had less wind power, both out of, out of Europe and out of China. So taken together, that really, is kind of the doozy um, that hasn't been, I think, well talked about is that it's the, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it only takes a little bit to really create the problems. And that 2019, you were over, you were oversupplied. 2020, you didn't have the demand. So nobody was worried about it. And then 2021 comes and people say it's this rare roaring back demand. It is, it's, it's recovering to your previous levels, but it's not being prepared for those demand levels. And I think that's the real difference that people are having a hard time wrapping their arms around is it's, they're not understanding that these demand levels are not any different than, I mean, they're in line with what they should be, um, but the preparation and having the, the coal stocks and energy stocks are not there. And this, this switch over, I think Kelly Evans asked this on, on CNBC yesterday, and she asked this question of, you know, the cost of switching over 
renewables and, and understanding this. And, and a lot of folks kind of dodge it and just say, well, you know, we have to move from the old economy to the new. And Amrita Sen uh, from Energy Aspects said this uh, two nights ago, about one in the morning on Bloomberg. And she said, this is when she she essentially said we're, OPEC was not going to increase output, which I completely agreed with her, um, that they weren't going to increase output additionally about that those 400,000 barrels a day. And at the end, after talking about energy and everything, she said, this is really a case in point of why you cannot demonize fossil fuels. And it is a reality check is that you cannot demonize natural gas to the extent that folks do not invest in it and we can't use it because every country in Europe, including the UK, really needs to have ample storage of natural gas. And it is uh, it is one of the most efficient and cleanest ways to actually reduce your CO2 emissions and maintain you know, a stable grid and, and reliable grid that you can actually bring the renewables into. Because what happens is when you have too much of that wind and too much of that solar and too much of the hydro, when something doesn't work, you're going to have to have that backup. And actually, the wind and solar needs that um, because the intermittency, particularly with wind, it needs that gas powered backup. And the, the weather is a component to this, which I think, you know, a lot of folks on the climate change and the activism side would say, well, it's climate change that is contributing and uh, contributing to this and these extreme weather events. And, you know, I, Chris and I actually talked about that as well, is that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a problem from a weather standpoint, weather changing and how this is going to actually play out. But the reality is, is that you're going to have to adapt with it. And um, this other article from, and this was from September 29th from CNBC, was, quote, UK energy titan SSE says low wind, um, driest conditions in 70 years hit renewable generation. And that's what the VP, you know, of Vestas was, was essentially saying is he didn't like this. Uh, he didn't like the inferior accusations on wind. But the reality is, is that it's, it is serious, is that it, when the wind isn't blowing, you're not having this power. And I think that if you're having these drier conditions, um, it's something to that has to be forecasted because the way the U.S. is going about it, the way you know, Secretary of Energy and the way the plans are within the U.S. to go to uh, to completely decarbonize the grid by 2035 um, is all wind and solar. And so that means the reliability of the U.S. grid would be massively at risk, not just from a cost standpoint of what all this costs. Um, and I haven't even gotten into, you know, the, the supply chain issues of, of how much of this stuff is made within the province of Xinjiang and China by forced labor. But it's a it's a massive cost and it's um, you have this, these intermittency issues which are dependent upon the weather. So if the weather isn't favorable for you or you have a dry, a hot summer or a dry summer or something and you don't have the wind, you're going to have these problems. And I think in the UK, I, it was something when you're when I'm watching Bloomberg at night and somebody they've had a lot of back and forth and having kind of a hard time issue talking about this. But certainly inflation has been a big component. And then somebody had said something about wind and was talking about you know, whether and they were saying, well, you know, it's, it's really about natural gas and these prices spiking. And, and uh, the woman <laughs> said, uh, she's like, well, you know, we're very familiar with weather in the UK and everybody's waking up and looking outside and wanting to know if it's windy. And it's like, that's a really kind of a huge deal and a little bit scary of not having that, you know, that redundancy. And you, you need the same thing for crude oil and everything. But I think it really highlights the importance of, of energy globally that we're the demand for energy coming out of this, coming out of COVID and the fact that the needs of energy um, and this push toward renewables and the investment toward renewables. And particularly, you know, it's the the push that we've had on ESG, the focus that we've had on ESG and the demonization in investing in oil and gas, I think that's extremely problematic because it means that we're going to be reducing the reliability of the system and we're going to be exacerbating these, these unstable costs to consumers. Um, and regardless of politics, which is going to ebb and flow, and we're already seeing this in Europe, we'll see what how this all plays out in the COP26 meeting that's taking place this month in um, in the UK, 
I think it's going to be extremely messy. I think the rhetoric is still going to be high. I think people are going to still be talking about green energy and everything. But I think the reality on the ground is that if the prices are going through the roof, not just for energy, but if they can't get food, if they don't have food on the shelves in the UK, it's going to be a huge, huge problem. And it's something that reliability is going to have to come into this. And it, it is uh, one of the many, many reasons just from an economic risk and business standpoint that I think that you you can definitely go long on natural gas. Um, and yes, you're going to have peaks and drops and ups and flows, but I think this is case in point uh, why um, you're going to be long on natural gas for the next 10 years easily. Okay. Now that we've talked about the global energy crisis, and that is one dive, I'm going to continue to get into, obviously, an an additional podcast. So don't worry. This is not a a, a topic where I'm going to let slide and and we we won't continue to come back to it because I'm following it very, very closely. And that gives you just a snapshot of sort of what I'm talking to my clients about and working with my clients. So feel free to reach out anytime. Happy to get into the weeds on it. Um, I'm going to close this out by talking about the China property issue. And I did a short video uh, with Chuck Yates. He He asked me to do this for the big... Big D, the big digital, anyways, the podcast that he's doing with with Colin McClelland um, that they're doing with Digital Wildcatters, I did a short like uh, snippet on Evergrande and the property issues within China in like 30 seconds, which was really difficult to do. Um, but I'm going to try to do this. And the reason I'm going to bring this up, and this is not the, the last time we're going to be talking about this, uh, China is a really, really big deal for the global economy and for the global energy market. Um, and I'm you know, the property sector in China is a huge component of the economy within China. So you've probably heard of, at least you've probably heard the name Evergrande and um, likening to Lehman Brothers, and you may or may not know what that exactly means or what people are talking about. And you may have now heard of a, co- a company called Country Garden, and you may have heard last night a company called Fantasia. And all this is really interesting because I did this little blurb for, for Chuck uh, a couple weeks ago for Digital Wildcatters. And um, I put this this the schematics together to do this in 30 seconds, and I'm going to take a little longer to explain it today, so you get the the full full purview. But Evergrande, everybody basically, if you listen to um, it, you, a lot of studying for this is really difficult. There's not a lot of coverage on one on there's not a lot of coverage in global energy out there, especially in the podcast space, and there's not a lot of coverage on on the deep stuff on China either, and certainly not a lot of folks tying this together. But on the property space, there's been a couple of good ones on from Evergrande from the South China Morning Post. Uh, up, there's a podcast called Inside China that does a decent job covering uh, covering the topic of Evergrande. And most people basically come back and say, this is not China's Lehman Brothers moment. And the reason they say that is because they say China is a ring fencing and putting air quote ring fencing the property sector, ring fencing Evergrande. And this isn't going to be a problem. And the reason they say this is because this is China, right? China just comes in and, and, and regulates something and then they fix it. What they're not seeing is that um, the size of the property sector and what it means to China. And I don't care if it's China's Lehman Brothers moment or not. It, it's, it doesn't matter. It matters that the real estate and property sector are such a big component of China's economy um, that, that and China's slowing and they're not going to be able to fix this. And the reason I say this is if you put this in context of what happened in the U.S. when the global financial system was taken out. And the U.S. is far more liquid, right? There's far more inflow in inflows and outflows in the U.S. than there is in China, right? We, we, we cannot easily invest money in China. Lots of folks do uh, to their detriment. They should, you know, hug, go hog wild because it's not going to work out for you with, with all these massive crackdowns that are taking place. But the point is that you cannot easily invest within China just in basic stocks and stuff. You have to essentially take big bets as banks, as Goldman and 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 HSBC and these companies put your big your put your um, put your feet on the ground and put a big wealth management team together and do stuff like that. It's not as easy. Um, and then in the U.S. you can. So 
part of why the U.S. took down the global financial system was because of that liquidity. And at the time, housing was only, and housing did it, right? The mortgage-backed securities that everybody was was buying one, two, three houses and, you know, and um, adjustable rate, the rates went up and, and everybody lost everything and, and lost the jobs and it trickled throughout the economy. Housing at the time in the U.S. was only one-fifth. The property sector was only one-fifth of the economy. Um, it is roughly a third in China. And the bigger issue with that is that the store of wealth. So at the time in the U.S., lots of folks did have money tied up in their homes, right? They were borrowing against their homes. And they had money tied up. Their their wealth um, and their equity was tied up in their homes. That is definitely the case within China, meaning that most Chinese have, um, instead of investing in the stock market, which is not the same, they haven't historically invested the same way um, Americans have or, or, or Europeans have, they have invested heavily in real estate because they've seen those prices keep going up and up and up. And that's partly because the government has supported it. So every time things go a little rough within China, the government comes in and they stimulate it and they support it. And that has led to a lot of, of, of less stable companies than people realize. When, when you have a top-down government, you end up having a significant amount when you have a top-down government, you end up having a significant amount of inefficiency in the system. So you have a, you end up having a lot of these companies that are not fully functional, right? And so what we're seeing now is sort of Evergrande is the second largest property developer within China. Country Garden is the largest property developer within China. You have several of these companies. Now, these companies do many, many things, right? They uh, they actually build the company. You know, they'll, they'll use contractors. They actually build apartments. They actually build buildings. Um, then they sell those apartments to individuals. Um, and they employ a lot of people through construction. I mean, Evergrande even tried to diversify a little bit last year or the year before, and they started getting into electric vehicles. That did not work out well at all. I mean, so it's very intrinsic and very messy, but they do employ a lot of people, which is a huge component to this. So when I say a third of the economy, that's a lot. It means that um, that property and real estate is is it's the actual construction and building of these homes, employing people, people investing in this, people buying these homes, um, and whether they sit empty, which they have. There's lots of apartment buildings and stuff within China. Not, I wouldn't say this is necessarily like the East Asian financial crisis in Thailand, where we actually, you know, you had hordes of these buildings that were empty. Although you do have a lot of these empty buildings in China, but the reality was a lot of folks didn't care because they would say, "Well, property values are still going up." So. The value was increasing. They're, they knew what their mortgage was, right? And that's the other thing in China. Historically, they didn't have mortgages, and now a lot of folks have mortgages. So it's very different. It means that they're going to see that their value of their homes are going down, their value of their investments going down, but they have their mortgage on a piece of paper, and they're still paying that. That's problematic, especially depending on who gets paid off in all the in this debacle. And this is why they say, is it the Lehman Brothers moment? Well, China... Every, it's assuming that China is probably going to let the bondholders default on this, right? They're not going to give this. This is going to be the the folks um, in the U.S. and and folks that invested. Uh, there's 300 billion that's owed by Evergrande. It's probably a lot more than that. Um, Fantasia came out last night, and Fantasia, interestingly enough, is a subsidiary of Country Garden, which is the largest property developer in China. So getting the point right that this information is trickling out. Nothing is transparent in China, which means there is no clean like data source you're going to find that's going to tell you all this stuff. So the writing's on the wall. It's not very good. And they are going to try to not, essentially, the, the people think that China's going to ring fences and that they're just going to go and they're going to make sure that, for the most part, lots of homeowners are are secured, that they're going to be paid off to a degree. I think everyone's probably going to take a haircut um, and not everyone's going to get taken care of because when if your property sector is or real estate is roughly a third of your economy and you're that 
you're the second largest economy in the world, the exposure is huge. And I, I bring this up because I think the uh, the global exposure to China is huge. If, if China is the second largest economy and they are the um, this one of the only consumer, you know, one of the largest consumers of crude oil, one of the largest uh, growth ends on, on the crude oil side, it means a lot. It means that if China's slowing, we already know China's slowing. So this uh, global energy crisis has put into focus inflation and really started getting people nervous about prices, the cost of goods, and really the growth and the trajectory of the global economy and the recovery coming out of COVID. And now there are serious concerns that that growth is now at risk because of inflation, because you're not going to be able to grow and you're going to have these crises. You know, this doesn't seem dissimilar from we've had energy crises in the past and they have caused economic shock. They've caused massive economic pain. In 2008, we had massive price spikes in crude oil and we had a massive recession. Um, I'm not saying we're necessarily going into recession, but I'd say you're, you're, as, you're as close to recession as you've ever been. We have not had a real correction, a sustained correction um, in the stock market. I mean, we haven't had a 5% correction in months. And we haven't had, we had obviously the massive correction in March of 2020, and then it came roaring back. And it shouldn't have come roaring back to the degree that it did, because it, it was all lopsided. And you, do, you have a Fed that's asleep at the wheel in the US, and you have massive inflation, and now you have these high energy and energy prices. And the reason this relates to China is because there, there's so much happening there, right? They, um, they are slowing, right? And we know a lot of things are happening from this crackdown that Xi Jinping is doing. Um, and it's telling you something. It's telling you that why is he doing this crackdown now? There's probably, there probably is slowing. Why are they completely silent on this Evergrande issue? Because they don't know what to do yet. They're probably assessing how do they really address this? And they're trying to sort of placate the markets and make sure they're, everybody's happy and this doesn't blow up in their face. It's probably going to blow up in their face. This is, but the market is not going to interpret that right. And they're going to take it slowly. And, and I would say there's a couple of folks I've seen on, on, on TV that have done a decent job on Bloomberg and CNBC of noting previous crises and what they look like and how the stock market keeps going up. And regardless of that, I would just say that, you know, people talk about the perma bearers on China and I've, I've probably always been one, uh, but that's because when you follow it enough, you realize that so much of the data is misleading, right? That there's 6% GDP growth, you know, a decade ago, they were, you know, double digits and they've since declined. 6% GDP growth is a lot. And even if that's true, which it's probably not, it's probably much, much underneath that. But even to maintain a few percentage points of GDP growth, it's really hard. We struggled in the U.S., um, particularly under Obama, to have two, you know, a couple percent GDP growth. That was really difficult coming out of the Great Recession. I mean, it was very, very difficult to maintain that, and that was with government spending and everything. It's hard to do that. Um, so China is going to have difficulty maintaining that growth while also trying to curb the massive problems that they're having with um, this property bubble and knowing that they can't let it go forever. So that's what I'm saying is that it's a, it's a really, really messy dynamic. Um, I have barely touched on it and I'm going to continue to get into it. So this is just your sort of your beginning of this topic. Um, we've covered a lot of stuff today. Um, so and I'll, I'll leave it with, you know, China is the is 14 million barrels a day of global oil demand in 2019. They were the only country to increase demand in 2020 to around 14.2 million barrels per day. If they slow down, if the global economy slows down, um, all these price spikes in energy are going to slow down as well. So um, it's not saying that energy prices can't keep going up in the short term. It's just saying that if they continue to go up, they're probably going to come ratcheting back down. And I think that's a massive risk to folks in the U.S., energy producers in the U.S. that really have to understand this. So with all of that, I will close this out and say we have talked about a number of things today. Today is Tuesday, September 5th. Uh, oil prices are soaring. Natural gas prices are soaring. We have talked about 
OPEC and oil prices. We have talked about the global energy crisis, and we have talked about China's property issues, Evergrande, um, and Fantasia, and uh, Country Garden. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it, guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.